Um, and as people trickle in, because it's like two degrees outside, so it's kind of really. Minnesota, they expect me down close to 30 below. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody texted me today and said, are we having church? It's just cold. I don't know. Anyway, so we're going to talk about uh, the age of revolution. In fact, we're going to talk about uh, record cold temperatures today. So, hey, that'll be fun. We're technically finishing up about uh, the American Revolution in terms of the, that being the end of the revolution. But last week I said we'd start this week by talking about uh, blessed be the ties that the tie that binds it. Uh, how many people have heard of that hymn? That classic old hymn. It's a guy named John Fawcett that was pastoring this little bitty Baptist church in West Yorkshire. Um, but he got offered this much nicer, much bigger, much more lucrative uh, Carter's Lane Baptist Church in London after being at, in his little bitty church for eight years. And he only made 25 pounds a year at his little church. So when he, when he was offered you know, three, four times that to go to a, a, a much larger, larger, nicer church, yeah, he and his wife were like, yeah, that's, that's great. That's, we of course were we called to go. We were called because nobody's ever called to go to a smaller church, right? God just never works that way. <laughs> so he preached this really nice farewell sermon. They loaded up all their stuff in the, into a bunch of wagons. They were on their way to, to leave. And the people of this church gathered around and said goodbye and begged them not to leave. Which I think is kind of tacky, actually. You know, to, to pack up all their stuff and then say, please don't go. Like, no. But so he's, he's, he's preached his final sermon. They're all begging them to stay. His wife looks at him and says, I, I, can't, I can't bear this. I, 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 can't, I can't do this. And he says, nope, neither can I. Unload the wagons. Put everything back. I've been swayed by my people's love. They... they whether you, how you look at this depends a lot on your theology of calling. Because um, like you were saying, you know, oh yeah, I'm being called to a much nicer position. If God is calling you somewhere, you ought to probably go where God is calling you. Otherwise, most people read this and they're like, oh, they were sweet because they love their people so much. He's such a good pastor. And I'm like, it always bothers me because I find myself saying, you are either making a mistake by leaving or you're making a mistake by staying. Where exactly did you screw up? <laughs> but anyway, I appreciate the heart behind it, and I appreciate his pastoral heart for his people, though he was willing to leave them. So I'm not, I don't know. So he asked the church if they could give him a raise, and they said, uh, no. <laughs> so, he, so he stayed there for several decades at 25 pounds a year. Um, and he kept getting offers to go to other places and kept turning down offers, kept getting offers to be the dean at different schools and things, and kept turning down offers so he could stay at this little lady bitty church. There are a lot of questions in this story that I wonder about. Yeah. Just several decades. Yeah. Let's even say three years. I mean, there's a whole generational change. Yeah. Somewhere, too. But, yeah, he's got a good heart. Mildred died. I read one of the Christian books. It says it's interesting how most pastors' calling seems to go to a church that pays more. Strangely enough, yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough, it's kind of odd for it's kind of odd to turn down a, a more lucrative church to take a smaller church. It's uh, it does weird things to your head anyway. Anyway, so to commemorate the decision to stay, he wrote, "Blessed be the ties that bind," where it talks about "Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds." is like to that above. 
um, and, and talking about praising God together, sharing each other's woes and their mutual burdens, um, and, and being there and sharing each other's lives together. So, anyway, if you ever sing Blessed Be the Ties That Bind, it's about a guy that said, no, I choose, I choose staying with these people that I love more than the perceived call to go to a nicer, more expensive church. Anyway, this is a little thing, but it's history, and it's worth noting, so. All right, 1783, Mount Lockie uh, erupted in Iceland. Now, if you remember... Every time a volcano erupts, the Yes! This is my point! It's, it's, it, people don't think about this. But if you remember, remember when Krakatoa erupted back in 535? We talked about that, and what kind of stuff went down? Yep. Exactly. So it affected weather patterns all around the world, which ultimately brought about the Great Plague that absolutely devastated Europe because a mountain in Indonesia erupted. Plague devastated Europe. Stuff relates to stuff all over the place. Well, this year, Mount Lockie erupted in Iceland, um, and it spewed lava into the sky in fountains three-quarters of a mile high. Why don't you stop and think about that? Yeah, three-quarters of a mile high. That's almost unfathomable. Think about the pressure. Yeah, I was going to say, how did they know that? They knew how tall the mountain was. Yeah, they knew how tall the mountain was. They saw how tall the plume was, and they're like, well, the mountain is a mile high, and that's three-quarters of the height of the mountain. Holy cow. Navigating, you have a little sixth, and you shoot a star up there, uh -huh. and it'll tell you within a mile or two where you are. Uh -huh. My friend that went to uh, across the ocean, the first one, he had a $35 plastic sextant that he used to navigate to the States here. Really? Cool. Yeah. Green, why don't you figure out what, what it's actually doing? It can be really nice to have a complicated one, but if it's doing what it's supposed to do, I knew somebody that uh, got, got lost and had a little compass that they got in like a cracker jack box that they used to get home, and you're just like, well, that's just a little itty bitty thing. They're like, yeah, but it points north. That's all I really needed it to do. Anyway, Lockheed is estimated to have produced three and a half cubic miles of lava while it erupted over the span of, of, of several months. I want you to stop and think about that. That's three and a half miles by three and a half miles by three and a half miles. That's a, a lot of lava all sticking over the place. This is a huge deal. Um, it also produced... And, and people don't think about this. When we think about volcanoes, we tend to think, oh, lava, bad, and lava is bad. There's this whole pyroclastic cloud. There's all these other things, including clouds of deadly hydrofluoric acid and sulfur dioxide all over the place. So just being in the cloud, not just the heat, but the cloud itself burns you. Uh, it dumped 8 million tons. Not 8 tons. 8 million tons of, of poisonous hydrogen fluoride into Iceland's ecosystem. Again, it's kind of unfathomable how huge this was. How many people died just from the volcano eruption itself? Not as many as you think, because Iceland didn't have that many people in it. But 120 million tons of sulfur dioxide got pumped into the air, which is three times the total annual European industrial pollution output today. If you take all of Europe's 
all of Europe and say, what's your, what's your pollution output of, of sulfur dioxide? You go, right, triple that. And that was the eruption for a year, for all of Europe, triple that. That was, that was what the eruption spewed into the air. Yeah, it's just nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. So, uh, yeah, this is very, very bad. So what it did was, they said everything in Iceland turned yellow. I mean, every, every most, every, most everything died in terms of plants and stuff. But, but even the stuff that didn't die all turned yellow because of the sulfur and everything. So all the grass, all the trees, everything. Um, tons of livestock died immediately, uh, but, but a ton of others of them died over time from the ash, sulfur, saltpeter poisoning, everything. They died from fluoride poisoning, uh, fluorosis, and inhaling volcanic hair while they ate. You know what volcanic hair is? They call it Pele's hair. It's these sharp, thin filaments of glass that are formed when, when the, uh, the basaltic glass that's formed when the, the basalt uh, lava is spewed into the air, and then the wind catches it and comes spins it. And so this just slices you to ribbons. It looks really pretty. I've seen all sorts of pictures of Pele's hair over the years. It looks gorgeous, but it's, think of everything, the worst thing you can think of a fiberglass, and then think of that on everything everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it was, this is just absolutely horrific. 50% um, of the cattle and horses, 80% of the sheep in Iceland died. This is just <coughs> apocalyptic, which is interesting, because right in the middle of the first scariest part of the eruption, there was a, a, a parish priest who's also a local farmer and also the town doctor named Jan Steingrimsen of the village of Klauster who held a church service because it was a Sunday. And it's like, it's time for our church service. And I'm the pastor, so we're going to have a church service. And so uh, as lava is actually creeping toward the city, Jan kept preaching. And he said, don't try to run. Just stay and pray. Which actually has something to be said for it because lava can travel faster than you can run. So once you see lava like that, everybody goes, oh, I'll just run. Probably. Once, once it's, depending on the, on the geography, if lava's coming close to you. So any movie, by the way, where you see somebody like, like being chased by the lava and they're running, you go, that person's dead already. A, because they're not going to outrun it, and B, because if they're that close to the lava, they're going to fry anyway. But neither here nor there. He says, stay here and pray. Let's trust in God. Pray that the lava doesn't come to town. Instead of trying to run, trust in God. And so he called, uh, he preached what became famous as the Eldmesa, the, the fire sermon. And miraculously, the lava stopped right before the edge of town. And this nothing, no house, no person, nothing was even singed. And so he was officially declared, like, the best pastor ever. <laughs> they built. We uh, want to keep him on for. We want to keep him on for 26 pounds a year. Yeah. But, they erected a chapel in his memory, and it's still sitting there. Only well, this isn't what they, the one that they erected then. But I mean, they, they. So there's monuments to this guy. There's a there's a really good book out there uh, about this. Um, but more to the point, not only did it, did it encourage everybody in Kloster, but this is exactly the sort of thing that Iceland needed to hear. Because Iceland just, I mean, like I said, everything they say, every blade of grass, every tree, if it's not dead, it's withered and yellow. All my, all the livestock, everything's dying. Every, thousands of people died. This is apocalypse. And then you hear about a guy that said, I trusted in God, and my village was saved. And you just go, all right. Big revival hits Iceland. <laughs> people go, wait, there is a God. Now, like with any of these things, 
that's kind of a flash in the pan kind of revival. So I can't say, oh, and Iceland was saved for centuries to come. But it still did affect people rather powerfully at that time. How you respond to a crisis situation is huge. You know, how, you, how do you respond when something goes south? How do you respond when everything seems hopeless? Stop and think about that, because what you do next is itself a huge witness. Anyway. Did a lot of their town people, though, end up dying because of the after the fiber stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, Maki affected, and it wasn't just Iceland, though. Because like you, you said, did they get poisoned? Yes. Uh, ben Franklin, sitting in France, wrote that all of Europe is covered in a dark, thick, dry haze, this brown-gray haze. He said it wasn't wet like a mist normally is. It's dry. You walk out and you just cough all the time. Everybody's coughing all the time. Which is why the Icelanders refer to it as the mist hardship. Because this is a time where everything's just covered in mist for like six, seven months. And, uh, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of ways that people describe it. But nasty, nasty stuff. Yeah, nasty smog. Uh, weather conditions, again, because the winds blew south, it was one of the hottest summers on record and everything's blowing south. So everything from the volcano blew south and changed all the weather conditions everywhere. 23,000 people in Britain died of fluoride poisoning because of this. And you go, well, then how are the Icelanders? About the same, because instead of it hovering in Iceland, it all blew south. Yeah. So it, there are a lot of people in Iceland that died, more people in England that died. England got hit the worst with this. Uh, another 8,000 people in England died that winter due to the record-setting cold temperatures. Now bear in mind, remember we've already talked about, you know, when, like, uh, Venice froze over and all this kind of stuff, that those were record-breaking cold temperatures? These are now record-breaking cold temperatures. What, what century was that, the first time you were telling us about that? People were, like, walking to different continents. Oh, oh, golly, that was, like, the, was it like the early 1600s? Or no, no, it was, like, in the 1400s. 1400s. Yeah. Okay. So about now, four years ago, they had an eruption in Iceland, and they had to stop flying in Europe for a number of days because yeah. of the What year was that? I was oh, just trying to... A few years ago. Okay, that's what I was... And it wasn't anything even remotely in this Yeah, I don't know. That's yep. why I was just wondering. Especially Scandinavian countries. They got it first. Mm -hmm. um, Egypt lost a sixth of its population due to the famines that came as a result of the temperature extremes and different things. Um, throughout the northern hemisphere, crops withered, refused to grow. Everybody was writing about the fact that just nothing's growing for, for the next year. Nothing's growing, so starvation was rampant. The Mississippi froze at New Orleans. New Orleans Harbor is frozen. There's ice on the Gulf of Mexico because of this. It changed everything. Nobody could travel. You know, uh, ports were locked in. Um, thousands of people are dying. Millions of people, six million people died worldwide because a, a, a volcano erupted in Iceland. So for, for those of you going, huh, when volcanoes happen, gravity stuff. I'm like, yes, it changes history. Because now suddenly, everybody is pulling in going, how do we take care of our people? My people are starving. Uh, my economy is shot. I can't get my ships out of port or back into port if they're out in the ocean. How does that change things? You're, okay, but you're a leader. What, do you, what does that make you do? You're a world leader. You're France. You're England. Whatever. What do you do with this? How does this change your foreign policy? <coughs> okay, you're, um, you're having economic problems in America, um, and 
And so somebody comes up and says, why are we spending so much money on our military? Don't we need to help people here at home, right? Yeah. Everything has become more cooperative because you now know you're, you're dependent upon what happens halfway around the world. Yep. It, well, you would, you would hope. You would hope that the countries would come together or at least come together and stop fighting one another. Um, Healthy-ish countries pull together and say, we need, to, we need to work on things. Unhealthy countries start falling apart because they're having so many problems here. Um, this also led, so this led to civil unrest in France. France is struggling, right? France is having tons of problems already. People are already have, remember before this, people are already rioting in the streets about bread, right? You have the big flower war, the, the flower riots and stuff. Yeah, common people, the nobles are still eating as well as they've ever ate. And now everybody else on the streets are dying in droves. France is on the cusp of having their big problems. By the way, French Revolution, not too long after this, right? Because everything's related to everything. So everything's been leading up to this, including a, a volcano that's erupted. Britain says, my people are dying in droves. My economy is starting to get shot. I can't take ships out of ports or back into ports. All right, fine, we're done with the war. So in large part, not only because of this, but in large part in terms of timing, because a volcano erupted in Iceland, the Treaty of Paris ends the Revolutionary War. Because everybody says, let's stop fighting. So uh, England, can you remember, England's fighting everybody, right? Because they ended up doing well with the, the, the Seven Years' War. And if you've ever played Diplomacy or Risk, whoever's doing well, everybody goes, well, stop them. So England's doing well. So France, Spain. Which is totally why when a presidential candidate says, "Let's make the biggest army ever, and that will make us safer," is a doofus idea. Yep. And the, and, and and if somebody says, the, "Sorry, no, no," but that's exactly right. If somebody says we're going to be the major power, the big boy in the block, you put a target on yourself. And if you say, "Let's decrease our army so that we, because we don't need it, everything's going well." You put a target on yourself. Because everybody, people will tend to sit there, if you walk up going, dude, I'm in charge, give me your milk money. I can do this now, because I'm the one who's big. And then you go, well, then 14 of us little guys are going to beat the heck out of you, because we're tired of you taking our milk money. Of course, the whole point was that the big guys found the little guys who could take, they could take their milk money and said, I want to take your milk money. So you don't want to be one of the little guys who gets your milk money taken. And you don't want to be one of the big guys that's running around taking everybody's milk money. What you want to be is one of the band kids in the corner that nobody messes with. You're just off doing your own thing, right? You you want to be mid-range. You want to just kind of fall into the woodwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. My sister's house was built three years before this. Oh, wow. Wow. All right, so France, Spain, the Dutch Republic, America, they're all fighting with England, right? They're all technically at war with England. But everybody decides, you know, we kind of need to focus on our own stuff. Can we, can we all just stop fighting? It, it's actually nice that everybody decides all at the same time, now's the time to stop being at war because we need to, to work on this because of this volcano and all the stuff that comes after that. And America's biggest ally at the bargaining table, because they all were coming together to work on this, America's biggest ally was? England. England. Why? Once you're done fighting, that's that's always like where you have the most to gain with people. Like think about how like in World War II when we when we got all like buddy buddy with Germany and Japan after the war, 
why yep. I thought it was that. And you were absolutely right. It's England. Everyone at peace, ex everybody wanted peace except Spain. Spain was being a stick in the mud. Spain wants Gibraltar. It's a large reason why Spain had been fighting England this whole time was they want Gibraltar back because they're like, dude, it's part of Spain. It's right there. That shouldn't be England. And England goes, no, it's totally England. They're like, no, it should be Spain. <laughs> Spain has been trying desperately to get Gibraltar back, and England has made Gibraltar one big fortress. Like, we're not leaving. We got Gibraltar, so I need Spain. So Sp Spain's like, I don't care. Volcano or nothing. To the last Spanish man, we're fighting until we get Gibraltar back. And the Dutch Republic and America and France and everybody goes, if you don't stop fighting, we can't all stop fighting. You need to stop fighting. Get your act together here. Let's figure this out. So, their ally France, who's like, we have to stop the war. We've got no money. My people are starving. They keep walking around going, oh, kill a king. I really think we need to stop fighting now. They say it in French. Uh, came up with a plan. They're like, okay, let's. we're going to make everybody happy. We, we figured this out. We'll stop all the fighting. Here's what we'll do. Here's the map prior to the Revolutionary War, prior to all the other fighting. So what we're going to do is this. You American colonies, knock yourself out. You are now independent. You, you're 13 colonies, you be you. You're no longer England, and that's great. You get, uh, you get all that. England gets to hold on to the Ohio Territory, which is Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. That's the Ohio Territory, or Northwest Territory. You guys get to do all that. Spain, you get to govern this area over here um, on, the, on, the, on the west of the Appalachians, south of the Ohio River, um, that's going to be Indian territory under Spanish control, which, if you think about it, means that it really actually kind of looks like this. Now, this is all just Spanish. If you can't get Gibraltar, how would you like Louisiana and Mississippi and, uh, and, and, and Florida and all that? Remember, you used to have Florida. You, you can have Florida back. Look, that means access. That means access to this part of the Atlantic. This is kind of crucial. Instead of being kind of, yet yeah, you're stuck back here. No, 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 you're way out here. You're on the coast with everybody else. Now you are totally wrapped around all of the Caribbean. That's good. Can't get Gibraltar, but you can get that. That sounds good, yeah. The problem with that, though, is that one, it's still not Gibraltar. No, it's not. And then two, it's far away. Yeah. So it's hard to bring you have Spanish forts and things like that there. But yes, you're right. But everybody wants their chunk of the New World. And obviously, Spanish, Spain wants the New World. They're like, we want all of it. And Gibraltar. Wait, uh, is, it, is the New World Spain's, or is that Portugal? It's both. It, it belongs to both of them. And and then you've got all these Protestants going, I don't care what the Pope said. Right. No, it's, it's ours. Why, why yeah. is it, though, that like, the, all the New England, where America's going to be, mm -hmm. they want to be independent, they want to be their own country. Why are all the people in all the other colors there? They don't care that they're under. Okay, well. I don't get why they say we want to be independent in our own country, too. Um, I mean, are well, they just that loyal to their. Somewhat. I mean, some, some of that. Um, some of that is that there's just not as dense a population. There's trappers, there's all sorts of things like that. Um, most of the Spaniards currently sitting over here 
are um, are either explorers or military governors of Indian territories or like Franciscan monks. There's just not a lot of settlements over here. We just talked about last week that Los Angeles is, is settled, but that was at this point there's like 50 people there. So I mean, there's it's, it's nothing going on. Um, so this is the densest populated part, and so they got you know towns and and areas and things and, and constitutions of their own. And so yeah. Um, and then there was all the politics regarding how they felt like they were being abused by England that made them say, not only do we want independence, but we want independence against you. Um, where's it going with this? Oh, okay. So America said, you know what? That stinks. We don't like your plan. This, this plan just looks like Spain wins. England doesn't win. We don't win. We get our independence, but technically we've got that already. Now back to what Nikki said. Once we said we're our own country, Kind of hard independent. We just you're just basically talking a cessation of fighting, which England was willing to do anyway. I don't like this plan. So America says, tell you what, hey England. Okay, remember playing diplomacy. England, come here for a second. We've been at war. We have been at war. But now it suits our purposes to work together. Come here for a second. Let me go talk with you. Let's get a plan here. So England uh, says, yeah. No, we're willing to work with you. What with the fact that you've been really chummy with France? Who do we hate more than anybody else on the planet? France. Um, you've been chummy with France. France has been nice to you, and now you're upset with France? We will happily talk with you. Yes, let's let's go talk. British Prime Minister William Petty says, Yeah, let's, uh, let's us be friends. Instead, maybe we'll torque off Spain and France. They hate us anyway. If you're willing to be our friends, you're the one we wanted economic relations with anyway. Yeah, let's do that. So England says, how about this? How about this? Does this look a little better to you? You get the, the, uh, the, uh, the Ohio territories. You get that Indian land. Oh, silly talk. No, you get that. How would you like that? We'll just double your land. Because, A, back to what Nikki said, it's not like we can necessarily hold it <laughs> anyway. And B, if this makes you happy so that we can work with you and have trade, okay. Does this torque off France? Yeah. Does this make you torque off France? Yes. So now they're mad at you? Yes. Win, 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 win. All the way around. What's interesting is you'll notice Spain still gets Florida under this plan. Because that's the only way they can get Spain to stop fighting. They're like, no, we're not giving you Gibraltar. You want Florida? Fine. So there's not a lot that they could do about it. Because America and England come back to the table and say, we've got a plan, here's our plan. France and Spain goes, no, we don't want it. You know, since we're the only ones over there, this is the plan. Or would you like to fight us? Because now France, who is desperate to stop fighting because they got nothing left, has to stop. And Spain is sitting there going, Work with me! Work with me! And nobody's willing to do it at this point, because, you know, Spain, France is over a barrel. Doesn't that happen often? Spain yelling, work with you, work with me, and everybody says no? Sort of. Now, I need to amend the map just a smidgen a little bit. Okay, first off, if you'll remember, everybody's kind of fighting politically over the Pacific Northwest, because England, Spain, and Russia all say that belongs to, to us. And they all technically have a, a claim to it, right? Spain says, this is all our stuff, right? Because this is all just blue. This is, we're the ones that, that, that map all this stuff out. 
England says, actually, we were the first ones over there. If you remember, we, we actually sent a guy over there. He actually planted the flag and said, this part's part of England. <laughs> the Russians are like, well, we're actually settling this. You know, we've actually got people there now. You guys don't have anybody there now. So they're all wrangling about who gets to own that part. And Vermont is not part of the Union. It's important to realize this. Vermont is doing its own thing. Vermont's a sovereign state for eight years, doing its own thing, printing its own money, raising its own military, making its own laws, all that kind of stuff. Blissfully happy until they're like, um, we're a little itty bitty bitty nation next to big Canadian space and big American space. And everybody's getting mad at us for being our own little nation. We'd like to join the union, please. So. So they did. But it's just interesting that you go, so, so that's not part of America? You go, no, that's Vermont. <laughs> oh. Those rebels. Those rebels. Those wacky Vermontians. Is that Ethan Allen? Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> so France is trying to mess everybody up, trying to you know, help its own ally. And as a result, France gets like nothing. Spain gets Florida. We get double our territory. England gets trade rights with us. And France goes, hey. We're even doing the treaty in our city. How did we get nothing? Got nothing, which doesn't help them right now, right? Because again, massive economic problems, political unrest, people are rioting in the streets. France is not looking good for the moment. And they even gave us money for the I know. But then, they, then they're like, ah, oh, jabby, 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 help Spain. And we're like, ooh, it's the, it's the last moment of diplomacy round. You turned off the wrong people. Sorry, we're going to stab you. So. 18, or 1784, John Wesley ordains a guy named Thomas Koch. Um, John Wesley leading a, 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 this uh, evangelistic group within the Anglican Church that's growing in popularity and growing in strength, and they're being derisively referred to as what? Methodists. The Methodists, because they're so focused on how you do things. You need to do things. In a <laughs> Your church is only barely Methodist. <laughs> that was harsh, wasn't it? No. Um, so, the, or what'd you say? They had a method to doing what they did. They had a method, and they said you really, and you really need to live the time, almost like Pietists. They're like, you actually need to to be living in ways that honor God. You need to be reading your Bibles. You need to be. Do, there's there's ways to do things, and people are like, oh, so you're all about how you do things, you Methodists. And they're growing, and they're reaching people for Christ, and it's good. Now, I should clarify, this is John Wesley, who's the skinny, preachy one, not Charles Wesley, who's the plump, hemmy one, right? He was the nice, pleasant, I write hymns guy, as opposed to his kind of not as pleasant, I preach sermons brother. But, uh, 1784, Methodists are, are finding that they're chafing more and more with the Anglicans. Uh, they have been working within the hierarchy, but increasingly they're finding this is not helpful. For instance, uh, John uh, asked the Bishop of London, a guy named Robert Louth, to ordain some ministers to preach in America. Because up to this point, most of the preachers are just lay preachers riding on a horseback. He's like, can we, can we ordain them and say, you're, you're legitimate Anglican ministers? Can we, can we do that? And Louth said, no, because America, a bunch of jerks, hate America. I mean, this is the Church of England. But it was. I mean, that's the argument he made. He's like, this is the Church of England. Why would we make anything easier in America? Um, and because ordaining more Methodists just gives more Methodist power. Like, why would I do anything that makes you guys look good? 
you know, we're Anglicans, and you guys are messing up traditional <laughs> Anglicanism. Um, no. He's starting to get frustrated with you. <laughs> Depends on which version of Anglicanism you, you're, you're thinking. Because there's a lot of Anglicanism where it's like, oh, believe whatever you want, basically. Uh, there's, there's a lot of British comedy that is based on the fact that if you go to a Church of England church, the sermon this week will be out of the Ladies' Home Journal. Um, there's not a lot of theology here. Kind of whatever. You, recently we have found that there are at least some things that the Anglican church is willing to go, not too far. When you're talking about denying um, uh, fellowship with the Episcopal Church here in America because of the Episcopal Church's stance on homosexuality, just in the last like two weeks, right? The, 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 the Anglican Church said, "You are you are disfellowship." Well, it's like one step away from excommunication. More Anglicans in Africa than there is any other part of the world. Interesting. All right, so. So it was like the beginning of the emergent church. And, and sort of. And they are conservative over there. That's why some of the American ones have joined with the African. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it is, it, it's, it's, it, yep. I mean, it used to be the Catholic Church was the most, there's only one way of doing things, and it's only our way. And in the last 50 years, the, the Catholic Church has been a lot more, oh, whatever we need to do to keep people in the church. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how things shift over time. Anyway, so Wesley starts ordaining his own bishops. He's like, I, you guys won't do it. You guys are, are dumping us like a hot rod. Follow the example. Good old he Henry VIII. He got his ordination on, uh, on the ability on in the internet, and now he can Actually, he did. He, what he did was, he, he's, as he was reading, he's like, you know, I don't see anything in Scripture that says that the only people who can ordain are bishops. I, I don't. I just don't see that. And, and so that's an interesting. It was an interesting question. He's like. Can't, is the only person that can say, we think you have a call to ministry, people who are already ordained as bishops? Or can you theoretically do what Henry VIII did and say, I made my own things, or do what the Anabaptists say, we're baptizing one another. Can lay people ordain? Can pastors and groups of pastors ordain bishops? There's nothing in scripture that says you can't necessarily. It's a dangerous thing to read your Bible. It is. It changes. Well, and, and it's, it, what's interesting is how many things you go, well, I just always assume this part. I mean, especially if you find yourself going, I'm a rebel, I'm a rebel, I'm a rebel, I'm a rebel. Wait, I've never been rebellious on this one? How did I never even look at that? How did I just assume that? Um, and John's been going, I'm a rebel, I'm a rebel. Then he's looking going, why am I asking why else the ordainers? I don't even have to. Anyway, so he ordains a guy named Thomas Coke, who'd been overseeing the Methodist Church in Ireland the last two years. And then, uh, oh, and I should say, Wesley never used the term bishop. He didn't like it. He thought it was unbiblical. We've already talked about this a little bit in terms of the words that you use with these. He preferred the word superintendent, which is actually a, a, a direct translation of the word episkopos, uh, or overseer would technically be a, a, a direct um, translation of that. So he's like, instead of, instead of bishops that have power and all this kind of stuff, how about people who are looking over to making sure everything's okay? You're giving oversight as opposed to controlling. Anyway, but by ordaining his own superintendents, the Methodists are technically, though not, not officially, they're not making an overt statement, but technically they are taking their own authority onto themselves and being their own church. It's not they, like what the colonists did. 
It's very similar to what the colonists did. It's, it's similar to what the, the Anabaptists did. That once you say, these people are not willing to do what we genuinely think is biblical, we will do those things ourselves outside of the authority structure, that is tantamount to creating your own church, even though that's not, that was not the intention per se. That is, in point of practice, what happened. What were you going to say? It's a church within a church. It's a church within a church that's becoming its own independent thing, like we don't really need you. And that's happening in the Covenant Church as well. But yeah, there's an increasingly vocal, um, increasingly not minority within the Covenant Church that is uh, is is making a big stink about that, and the Covenant Church is trying very hard to to do what it is has no facility in doing, which is to take a hard stand on a theological issue. There's been centuries going, we don't take hard stands on theological issues. They're like, how do we do this? So, anyway. How does a church get to where they're not going to take a hard stand You just hug everybody a lot. Um, seriously, you just, uh, let's focus on hug. Let's just focus on, on, on nobody ever getting upset with one another. You do that for a generation, that's where you are. Uh, Cope was then sent to America to ordain the lead pastor there, a guy named Francis Asbury. Anybody ever hear Asbury? Oh, yeah. yeah, he's the guy from who, for whom Asbury College, now Asbury University, and Asbury Theological Seminary were uh, later named. So. Is he also the guy that the egg is after? I think that's where Gene uh, Fernandez Chocolate egg. Yes, it is, actually. No, it's Asbury. 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 Asbury's the one that makes the eggs. Uh, Anyway, and Canterbury is the guys over. Anyway, point is, Asbury, uh, Asbury Theological Seminary is like the premier Arminian, um, biblically conservative seminary on the planet. Uh, where like Dallas Theological Seminary is the premier Calvinist, biblically conservative theological seminary on the planet. So Asbury and Cal and and uh, and Dallas. Uh, have this kind of love-hate thing going with each other, where they look at each other going, you're all really, really, really good at doing the wrong thing, aren't you? Um, there, there are other places that are that are more liberal or that do things, but, but these two are strongly evangelical, strong biblical, um, strong scholarly, coming at things from two completely different perspectives. Are they still that way today? Okay, because I read a book about some of them that were founded way back mm -hmm. that, like, their own children right. that are well, taken over. Fuller, poor Fuller just keeps flip-flopping yeah. all over the place. Fuller's like, oh, we're very conservative. No, we're wildly liberal. No, we took it back. We're very conservative. Well, we're drifting liberal. Fuller doesn't know what it's... I, and I, I have great respect for their scholarship, but Fuller depends on the administration as to where they're standing. This is where I was looking at either Gordon Conwell or Trinity, because those were the two best... Um, we bridge the gap between Calvinism, Arminianism. We, we come at things from all sorts of different perspectives. And so both Gordon Conwell on the coast and, and uh, Trinity up in Chicago were solid, you know, just as solid theologically, just as solid scholarly. And, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, that strikes me as a bit, a bit more where I would be, is not trying to tow a particular party line with either of these. So anyway, but they're both good. So, uh, Francis Asbury, who had stayed in America during the Revolution to continue the Methodist outreach ministry here. 
He's a Brit, but he's, he's like, well, we've been reaching out in America. I'm going to stay in America. I'm going to continue reaching out. Why wouldn't I? Uh, in fact, he even reached out to his carriage driver, a freed slave named Harry Hosier, and helped him memorize large portions of scripture because Harry couldn't read. Um, Harry went on to become a preacher in his own right. Uh, in fact, he was the first African-American to preach to a white congregation. And so, because of Francis Asbury. So, you know, way to go. Sitting there going, I don't care what color you are. Let me teach you scripture. Let me teach you how to do this kind of stuff. At the Christmas conference in Baltimore in 1784, Coke ordained Asbury and 12 other ministers. Um, so that Asbury could be the bishop or the superintendent here in the United States. The conference was not appreciated in England, as you can imagine. First off, because it's flagrant disregard for everything going on in England, right? You just go to, to Louth and we're doing, doing our own conference. And so uh, the, the, the Anglicans are like, you, you don't even have the right to hold a conference. What are you, your own church? Which is why Methodists in America go, 1784, Christmas conference, that's when we started. This is the, even though that's at the Christian conference, they did not declare themselves their own church. Theoretically, this is where that started. Secondly, because Coke preached this ordination message where he argued that only godly men should be made bishops, as opposed to how the Anglicans do it over in England, um, which didn't go over well, strangely enough. But, uh, all right. Immediately following the end of the conference, immediately following, the next thing Asbury did was to go back and do circuit writing, just like he'd always done. Didn't change a darn thing. Because he said, you know, ordination by man should not change the active ministry of the ordination by God. I was ordained by God to be a circuit writing minister. You told me that you think I should also be a bishop. And I say, okay. And God told me I should be a circuit writing minister. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going around and doing this. You want me to oversee other ministers? You want me to oversee pastors? Great, I'll do that. But it's not changing the ministry that I know God gave me. I'm like, okay, I kind of like you a lot actually. Under superintending, the church in America grew from 1,200 people to 214,000. Now, I'm not a huge, big fan of numbers. I don't really care about numbers that much, but that's significant, I, I think. Um, that's a lot of significant, so I want to <laughs> give that uh, I want to give that a lot of, of, of credit. When, you know, it's like, they didn't without those books on how to grow your church. Strangely enough. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, you're Judging from what you know about Asbury, who everybody seemed to respect, and he's a little bit intense. Um, he, was, he, he, didn't, he didn't suffer fools very well, and he thought a lot of people were fools. So, uh, he's very intense. But you can see where you go. If he's extremely committed and very passionate, very intense, extremely biblical, extremely committed to outreach and ministry, saying, I will stay in a war zone to continue ministry. Um, you made me a superintendent. Great. I'm going to continue my ministry. You can see why that grows a church. I mean, more than all sorts of, well, here's the strategy for doing this and this. It's like, I love the Lord. I love the Word. I'm going to live every day as if this actually matters. You go, yeah, that's infectious. So again, how do you respond to a war zone? How do you respond to a difficult situation? Asbury goes, doing what I was supposed to do. It's a huge witness. By the way, he also ordained 700 new ministers, including Richard Allen, the first African-American pastor in the United States. Again, I kind of love Asbury because he's sitting there going, I don't care what color people are. I don't care where they're from. People need Jesus, I'll give them Jesus. Do you know what city he ended up being, uh, Richard Allen? Uh, was it Boston, Baltimore, something like that? But uh, he was part of the first African-American 
Methodist church here in, in, in the United States that we'll be talking about here uh, in a couple of weeks. So um, I'll find out. No, it's okay. I was just thinking, I would, Molly and I read one of those um, American Girl Books uh -huh. series and it was a black church and I was just wondering. Well, depending on the time period, yeah, it might have been his. All right. 1785, Little Turtle War. You've heard of the Little Turtle War, right? Okay. That's what it used to be called. Back in the day, it used to be called Little Turtle War. To be a little less ridiculous sounding, uh, historians now tend to refer to it as the Northwest Indian War. Then other people complain about that because they're like, well, they're not Indians, they're Native Americans. But the Northwest Native American War just starts getting silly sounding. But Little Turtle War broke off. Um, my guess is very few of you have heard of it. Crucially important. Remember how important Queen Anne's War was and nobody had heard of it? Same thing here. You go, hugely important. Nobody teaches this. We tend to go, there's the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, uh, eh, Mexican-American War, uh, Civil War, uh, what's the next one, World War One? No, oh, actually, there's, a, there's one, the Spanish-American, remember the main, the Spanish-American War? Oh, that's right, the 1890s. And then there's those, there's tons of wars. There are tons of American wars, and people just ignore them entirely, which makes me sad. Anyway, Little Turtle, actually, that's not his name. His name would be more like Painted Turtle, but for whatever reason, historians call him Little Turtle, and so it would be weird if we didn't call him Little Turtle. So we're going to call him Little Turtle. Little Turtle was the chief of the Miami tribe of the Ohio Territory, because that's where the Miami tribe was. Just deal. Like the Mississippian culture is all in the Ohio, Ohio Valley, and the Miamian culture is all around here. And I say that because people go, Miami, that's in Florida. Okay. No, Miami University is in Ohio. Exactly! Named after the Miami tribe. So he's the chief of the Miami tribe in the Ohio Territory, which was known as the Northwest Territory at the time because it's on the northwest side of the country, right? This is Spanish place. Dark blue, that's all that exists, right? And if dark blue is all that exists, that's northwest. So the so Illinois, we're in the northwestern United States. At that, era. at that era. But anytime you hear about the Northwest Territory, that's what they're talking about. Also, Eventually. Not Midwest. Like, well, like it is now. Right. That tool was just an extra syllable. It's too, too hard to say. I just, I thought it was funny. I was like, I was reading something. It was like, the Midwest. Whoa. We live in the Middle West, guys. Well, we, remember when we talked about the, the Middle Ages and, and, and how people use that term? And you go, do you even have any clue why you call them the Middle Ages and stuff? And stuff? No, I'll never mind. Okay. So it's Northwest Territory. Uh, and the Miami tribe had loosely allied with the British during the Revolutionary War. Back in six, the 1768, the British said, you know, you be with us and we promise you all the Ohio, uh, all the Ohio Territory, this is all Indian lands, and it will be in perpetuity. Um, biggest problem with Britain's deal with America is nobody told the Indians, right? They, nobody bothered to ask the Miami if that's okay. They're like, here, you can have the Ohio Territory. We weren't going to have it anyway. We were going to give it to the Indians. We'll just give it to you. And you go, yay, double my size! And England goes, no skin off our nose, one way or the other. If you are the Miami tribe, how do you feel about the fact that all these settlers are coming out there? We're like angry. Yeah, you'd not be, not be happy about this. Suddenly all these settlers come out there, expanding their country, and there are people already there. They're like, well, we, this is ours. England said so. So Little Turtle brought the Ohio and other tribes, the Shawnee, etc., together into a loose confederacy to fight the Americans and keep them east of the Ohio River. Like, this is our land. So who's right here? The Americans or the or the Miami? 
So they didn't appeal. He didn't. He didn't think. He didn't appeal to any English authority at this point. He, he had no real facility to. But even if he had, the English would have said, "We don't care. It's not our territory anymore. What are we going to do? Go to war? We just we did this to stop being at war." Any time the big superpower says it's okay, I'll tell you what. I'll let you have this land that was already yours anyway, <laughs> and we'll take this land over here that was already yours. But we're going to take it. But you can stay over here, like. That's always going to be a bomb deal, dude. Never let the other guy dictate terms, if at all <laughs> possible. i got an idea. You own both of these chairs. I would like both these chairs. Let's compromise. I'll take one, you take one. That's fair. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I own both these chairs. Come with me giving up a chair. Exactly. You think, you think it's wrong to, you think it's wrong to abort an infant? I think it's okay to abort an infant. I think that everybody should have the right to choose. You think that people shouldn't have the right to choose because it's murder. Let's take the middle ground and just let everybody have the right to choose for themselves. Exactly. You know? exactly. Wait, that's your whole position! Right. He's like, that's not. Anyway, um, so you got to stop when people are, are, are saying, here's a piece of problem. So, uh, so, the, so the Ohio, so the, uh, the Miami and the, and the Shawnee and things say, we're going to fight, which of course makes the Americans have to fight. And again, this is one of these things where you go, who's right, the Miami or the Americans? And you go, it is the Americans' land given to them by England. So far as treaties are concerned, they didn't have a treaty with the Miami. It makes total sense for them to take it. It's theirs. For the Miami, it's total sense. It's theirs. England gave it to them. But since England is no longer there and part of it, which one of them is right? Well, I think more where you go, well, England stinks. You know, but in terms of the Americans and the Indians, it's but you get both of them as to why they do this. Now, after the, the Revolutionary War, the army had disbanded because it had always just been militia anyway, right? You take the militiamen up and you give them guns and you train them and then they get to go back to their farms when it's done. That's what it is. So most of the army had abandoned, uh, uh, disbanded by then, and so Little Turtle's Confederacy kicked some serious booty to begin with. They, they, they won battle after battle. And then... General George Washington, who's not president yet, still just the commander-in-chief of what little armed forces we have, sent war hero Mad Anthony Wayne West to deal with the problem by using a reorganized unit, a brigade of, of the army called the Legion of the United States. You get to have your own legion to go out and do whatever you think needs to be done to stop all this. Um, he was called Mad because he had very unorthodox tactics. He would do things that nobody would ever think of to win, and he had a very colorful, flamboyant personality. He's just like, I, I, I go, I'm a maverick. I'm doing my own thing. Um, he's famous for one time winning by having his uh, his troops climb a mountain in the middle of the night. So the first thing in the morning, they attacked on a, on, on, on a butte that British had no idea that they were even there. It's like, basically, in other words, he would have been a classic American action movie hero, right? I'm a maverick. I do things you would have never dreamt, and I get results. You know, yep, Mad Anthony Wayne. That's make a movie about it, because that's exactly what it means to be an American. Anyway, the Confederacy was finally broken at the Battle of Broken Timbers in 1794, when the Shawnee chief Blue Jacket was defeated by Wayne and his legion. Right, Little Turtle is is forced to sign the Treaty of Greenville in 1795 to finally end the decade-long war. A ten-year war. How long was the Revolutionary War? 
the eight years. Eight years, from 1775 to 1783 is the American Revolution. This thing's, and that seemed interminably long, right? This thing's ten years long. And you never hear about this in school, which bugs me, bugs me muchly. Anyway, um, the army that built a, a fort nearby, uh, which Wayne then named after himself, which is why we have a Fort Wayne, Indiana, because Wayne's a classic American hero. This is Kevinville. Yeah, there you go. Okay, important for a bunch of different reasons, uh, and it's worth noting. First off, it's the first military engagement of the fledgling United States, right? And, and it's the biggest issue in office for President George Washington when he finally comes into office in 1789. This is the major thing he's having to deal with, is the Northwest Indian War. And you never hear about it, but this is the first time where we as a nation have to fight somebody as a nation. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, never heard of it. And it makes war veterans out of several people we're going to hear about here soon, like Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. Anybody ever hear of hear the name Tecumseh? By the way, have you heard of Tecumseh's War? Because there's a whole other war against Tecumseh and his Shawnee again. So lots of wars going on. So there's there's Tecumseh. There's a young lieutenant, William Henry Harrison. Anybody ever hear of William Henry Harrison? What he? Little bitty president. Little bitty president. He gets to be president of the United States in large part because he's seen as a war hero. What war was he originally a veteran of? The Northwest Indian War. Um, Lieutenant William Clark. Anybody hear of William Clark before? Okay. He had a very young scout named Meriwether Lewis. But they became heroes of the Northwest Indian War. And as a result of that, they had reached the attention of the president. So when Jefferson needed somebody to go scout out new territory, he sent Lewis and Clark, right? Because of their deeds in the Northwest Indian War. So this is important, right? Nobody ever hears of this war. Makes me sad. Treaty of Greenville. The United States government agrees to provide protection and federal oversight for Indian lands. They're like, we, won't, we will take care of you, we'll give you an annual stipend, we'll give you subsidies, we'll give you medicine, we'll teach you um, how to do farming from the way that we tend to do it, which will do all sorts of new things. And, and the Indians all went, thank you. This is a good thing, isn't it? Who's calling the shots? No, this is a good thing! This is a good thing! We're helping! We say we're going to give you your lands, and then we will help you. We'll, we'll pay for stuff. We'll help you. And we'll give you protection of the army. Isn't that a good thing? Okay, why do you shake your head? Why is this not a good thing? Jackson became president later on. Well, there's that. But, like, the United States has never had a, a reason to, to for the prosperity of the Native Americans. Like, it's only ever, like, convenient to the United States government that the Indians do well. Native Americans do well if it means they're not fighting us. Mm -hmm. But the only convenient thing is for them to just keep giving us stuff. And here's the and thing. That's always been the case. It sounded always. it sounded really good at the time to the to the Indians. They're like, okay, you'll stop fighting us and you'll give us stuff and protect us from other tribes and things like that. Yay! This also created the the precedent for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which 
did some very good things. There were some really good agents of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There were some really good people who worked really hard. This is also an institutional way of controlling Native American populations. This, the Treaty of Greenville, set the legal precedent for us declaring this is Indian territory, which the Indians said, thank you, that protects us, because the federal government can declare what constitutes Indian territory. Well, that's the thing. Is, but once the federal government goes, well, that was Indian territory. Now Oklahoma is Indian territory. Actually, not the oily parts of Oklahoma, but this part of Oklahoma is Indian territory. All that is set in terms of precedence set here at the Treaty of at the Treaty of Greenville. All right. Um, and again, it's easy to say, you know, white people bad. It's more complicated than that. But this is the precedent for all, the, all that stuff that comes later with mistreatment of Native Americans on a federal level. Um, treaty also gave General Anthony Wayne and his legion a great deal of authority and power in the Ohio Territory because it is now under what amounts to martial law, right? And then the federal government has promised to have troops there to protect the Native Americans. Take Lucy up to the hospital. She has a blood pressure thing. Okay. All right. We'll pray for her in, in, in a second. Um, oh, okay. So uh, he now is, is in, in complete control of the Ohio Territory because, uh, in essence, it's under martial law as the federal government has promised to protect the Indians by having troops there. Which means that the Legion, instead of just being a reorganized unit for a specific task, is now a professional standing army, right? Because if it's under martial law, you need to have soldiers there all the time. But originally, originally in the United States, the, the concept was not having a standing army. It was having a bunch of militias that you keep calling up whenever you need them against foreign armies, right? So the very concept of having a professional standing U.S. Army is the result of the Treaty of Greenville of the Northwest Indian War, where we said, well, we need a standing army to police our own Indian lands. Therefore, we will have a professional, they're always there, standing United States Army. So I'm telling you, this is an important war. This is a really important war, and nobody ever remembers it, which makes me sad. 1787, the United States ratifies the Constitution. Let's get back to that next week. But how would you synopsize what we're doing here in, in history? How would you synopsize today? What kind of things stood out to you? Okay. That we sometimes are guilty of making the same mistakes. I guess I think it's really interesting how, you know, one volcanic eruption really started some of the domino effect methods. Well, and that's the thing, you can go, one volcanic eruption one treaty here, one, one war up in the northwest about Indians. You go, yeah, there are centuries of repercussions that come from anything that happens. Everything you do matters, right? You don't necessarily know how it's going to matter. Everything that you do matters. We also see this theme of how you respond to crisis, how you respond to difficult situations makes a difference. Link those things together. How do you respond in good times? How do you respond in bad times? Historically, we see this stuff has ripple effects that continue on and on and on. Also, with all this, not to be political, but 
but with the climate change and all these different things, we have no control. It just really offends me that on the political level that we can say that we people, especially we Americans, are the ones that are causing problems when it can be a volcano, when it can be, you know, El Nino. It's, there's, nature is taking care of that. We are not doing anything. Or, or maybe even, let me nuance that with one nudge and say that ton of this is just vicissitudes of nature, right? And yet, um, like with the Northwest Indian War, you go, yeah, that was people's. You know, so some of the stuff that, that happens, yep, we are responsible for. Some of the stuff that happens, yep, we have no responsibility for how it happened. And it's how we respond. Uh, like the pastor go. who had his whole town on the news praying like that. Lava's coming down from the sky. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like we don't have to be responded in a godly way. And it made a difference for a nation. It made a difference for a nation. Yeah. How we respond to the Indians, how we respond to the volcanoes. So let's close on that. Dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to respond to our world. I thank you for the opportunity that you give us to, um, to minister to one another, to show people how a, a godly Christian handles blessings, um, how a godly Christian handles tragedies. Lord, I, there are some things that are completely out of our control. There are other things that good and bad, we brought about. I pray, Lord, help us to stop and think, how do we respond from this point forward? Whether it's to a climate change brought about by a volcano, or to um, or to a war brought about by a, a government disregarding its treaties. Help us, Lord, to know that what we do, what we say, the attitudes of our heart matters. Everything that we do matters. Help us to love you and one another well, in Jesus' name. Lord, we also pray for, for Lucy, and I pray that you watch over her, give wisdom to her doctors, and find, find out what's going on because of uh, her blood pressure spikes that she's been having lately, and especially this week. Help our Lord to, to be calm, to, to have peace, and to trust in you. But I pray, Lord, that you, you just give them wisdom to figure out once and for all what's going on. And I pray that you touch her body and heal her. Give that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.